Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by John Lawrence, a Toronto-based author and journalist who's written three books, including his most recent, Dream States, Smart Cities, Technology, and the Pursuit of Urban Utopias. Dream States has been shortlisted for the prestigious Donner Prize for the best public policy book by a Canadian. The prize will be awarded on May 18th. John, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. And congratulations on the book and its success. Thanks very much. Let me start with a basic question. What are smart cities? Are they a marketing device, a tech bro fantasy, or something that could really positively transform the lives of average urban residents? So there's an active and unfinished debate about what this term means, um, particularly in academia, as you probably won't be surprised to hear. Uh, the The way I use the term is to kind of denote this broad family of technologies that uh, are largely digital. They use a lot of sensors, um, you know, big data analytics and that kind of thing. Um, And they operate on, you know, different types of urban systems. So that's the way I use the, uh, um, the, I use the term. And, you know, some of them are positive in their applications. Some of them are neutral or you know, don't work all that well, and some of them are negative. And I tried to kind of explore those different categories in the book. A key insight in the book is that today's smart cities technology is part of a historical progress of new technologies transforming and often improving the conditions for those living in cities. You dedicate a whole chapter, for instance, to water and sewage technologies. Talk a bit about your point here, John. Why was it important for you to put smart cities into this historical context? So, Part of it is personal. I really am a big geek for urban history. And uh, I, I've i written quite a bit about it. Uh, and I find it an interesting topic because there are this, you know, fairly finite number of technologies that enable us to live in urban spaces. Uh, and there are things that you don't necessarily think about. Uh, you know, the S-joint in your toilet, for example, is a really good example. Uh, and what I wanted to do with this book is kind of contextualize this emergence of these new technologies and put it in this broader historical context, because I do think that it's important um, if you're thinking about cities or if you're writing about cities and, you know, if you're living in cities to understand them in four dimensions, there are all the three that we can see and touch. And then there's this fourth one called time. And we, uh, you know, we live with this accumulation of uh you know, built form and technologies that have enabled these spaces to evolve. And 
this process is ongoing, of course, and now it includes this family of digital technologies. And this is why I tried to kind of, you know, string them together in that way. That's a great answer. One difference, perhaps, is today's concerns about data and privacy. Toronto Sidewalks Labs failed for various reasons, but a key one was that people were discomforted by the idea that a company and or a government was collecting so much data on us in, in real time. It felt to many like a sci-fi film or, or modern China. Have any cities pursuing s- smart cities technologies figured this out? What sort of data or privacy regime, in your view, could secure democratic buy-in? So generally speaking, the European Union has the strongest and most robust privacy uh, legislation. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of other countries are kind of just gradually moving in that direction. And you have a whole bunch of different types of rights, the right to disappear from the internet, for example. And there are a bunch of these sorts of privacy, uh, uh, you know, privacy regulations. And so Europe is also perhaps not coincidentally, where you see, you know, some of the kind of most interesting applications of smart city technology in a way that's consistent with, you know, with the type of society we have, which is liberal democracies, where there's this notion of civilian oversight, you should have some ability to kind of understand what governments do on your behalf, and with the resources that you give to them. Uh, So that's the trade off. Canada's uh, privacy legislation, which is being updated, uh, you know, was really found wanting with the, and that I don't think anybody, except for the people who are really sort of immersed in this world, really understood just how kind of lagging it was until the sidewalk labs thing came up. Um, and, you know, it, it was, a, you know, it was a bucket of cold water on our heads. We realized that there are all these technologies that are very powerful, that, you know, we really would surrender a lot of our privacy and our ability to just manage this data that's collected in public space on our movements and on our, you know, all sorts of things. Another challenge, at least in the Canadian context, is that moving ahead with sidewalk labs or other smart city projects is that they tend to involve a big role for large global companies rather than involving smaller domestic ones. How does economic nationalism play into your story? And on a separate yet related note, why do you think that American big tech companies have gone from being perceived as engines of progress to the source of suspicion? What happened? How, in other words, did we start hating Silicon Valley? So I think that I'm going to answer the second question first. So the the narrative about Sidewalk Labs, and for your readers who aren't that familiar, it was this big Google subsidiary that wanted to redevelop a portion of Toronto's industrial waterfront. Uh, and they arrived, uh, the, the, the project was unveiled in 2017 and kind of stumbled along for three and a half years. And then they finally pulled up roots. And in the middle of that was this moment when Cambridge Analytica um, surfaced. Um, and it was, it was, I believe, this big aha moment for a lot of people with the tech industry because you know, there have always been concerns about privacy and about, you know, how, you know, how much we share on social media. But this was a moment when, you know, we all learned that there were these companies that were, you know, kind of taking personal data out the back door and using it for, you know, in ways that, you know, lots of people didn't approve of. 
and I think that that was a pivot moment. And I think that had that not happened in the middle of the sidewalk lab story, it would have taken a different turn. So that's a kind of broader context around, you know, how we're thinking about tech. There are a ton of companies, big and small, developing smart city solutions. Um, you know, some of them are very far reaching. Some of them are quite specific to, you know, how municipality operates. Uh, it's not necessarily a space that must be dominated by big companies. Uh, I mean, there are big companies that were very involved with that, Siemens and Cisco and, you know, Sidewalk Labs, Google. Uh, but it's a it's a big space. There are hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue generated in the sector every year. Uh, so it's not necessarily um, a space that's totally dominated, like search, for example. Uh, and, you know, depends on depending on how ambitious cities are in terms of their adoption or their use of this, it that kind of is connected with how much they'll use very big solutions versus very small solutions. Um, and there are lots of places where, you know, where municipalities or regions will you know, they'll buy a certain technology and it may be bespoke, it may be something more off the shelf, maybe local, maybe bigger. Um, and then there are other places where there's this kind of big bang thing where a small number of big tech companies and big, uh, you know, big developers are building like a whole city. And we've seen Songdo, Songdo, for example, in South Korea. Uh, and that was what Sidewalk Labs was going to be. So a lot of variants. As an intellectual matter, one thing that struck me as I read the book is the potential tension between smart cities being top-down and bottom-up. On one hand, they claim to draw on the decentralized experiences and preferences of individuals to better inform operational and policy decision-making. On the other hand, they centralize these data in the hands of a small number of companies or public administrators. What do you think of that tension how much is the gap between the idealized version of the smart city and its practical reality an explanation for the lack of political progress? It's a big gap. So one of the things I wanted to do with the book was really kind of explain what we're talking about when we're talking about smart city technology. And there's a whole potentially, you know, possibly laborious part of the book where I kind of get into it. And, you know, in a lot of cases, these are very specific applications uh, they don't have anything to do with personal data. They're about, you know, traffic light control and that kind of thing. And that's all fine. So, like, I think that the the point of scale and the point of, uh, you know, of the, the centralization, it really depends on the application. Uh, in the case of Sidewalk Labs, there was this question about how much data and in what form it would uh, take you know, the, the data that was going to be collected in this neighborhood by all these thousands of sensors that were going to be put in public space and <clears throat> who was going to have first crack at it. And I think that part of the conversation around privacy and security is, is that if, if a city is collecting this kind of data, it has a higher obligation to ensure that it's used with intentionality and with you know, due regard to the existing legislation, then, you know, private company, I mean, you know, I go in, you know, I go into my local store, I shop with my visa card, visa collects information on me, they sell it, you know, that that happens, that exists. Uh, 
there hopefully there's some laws that you know limit how much they can share i would argue that the public sector has a higher bar to reach and um and so that's why we need to you know we need to be careful about who gets the data how it's used and um, you know in some cases that might mean more centralization um but within the context of the public sector you write quote cities by virtue of their very complexity can be particularly vulnerable to the law of unintended consequences unquote what do you think jane jacobs the famous urbanist who favored a decentralized form of urban planning rooted in the notion of cities as quote living beings would think of this trend to want to use big data to inform operational and planning decisions by cities and municipalities. I think she wouldn't have trusted it. Her approach was very observational. Like she she knew the city by virtue of seeing what was going on and listening. And it was uh, you know, I think it it it's it's an approach that I don't think has a lot of cachet anymore and certainly wouldn't pass muster in any university. Uh, she was also, you know, the flip side of that was that she was very suspicious of kind of a more technocratic approach to uh, local government. Uh, she had a special disdain for traffic engineers. She didn't think that that was a real discipline. Uh, so, you know, smart city tech is for sure more technocratic approach to managing urban space and urban, urban places because the rational idea is that you gather tech, you gather information and that the information will reveal solutions to whatever your problem is and you know maybe that's true and maybe it's sort of a misguided putting too much faith in just raw data and your ability to slice it and dice it let me follow up with a question about politics how do smart cities graft onto our typical left right political divide in the main not much really uh, and so the asterisk on that is sidewalk labs, which was highly polarizing. Um, I don't think that it was polarizing along a left-right continuum so much as a, um, a sort of a business kind of concerned citizen continuum. Uh, there were, you know, it's overlooked often in the storytelling about sidewalk labs that there were a lot of people in the tech industry here in Toronto, who were very keen on this idea. And tech is a big industry in Toronto. Um, you know, the Waterloo Toronto Tech Corridor is an important economic engine. And there were a lot of people who were quite excited about it. Uh, and then there were people inside those communities who were like, wait a minute, we don't want to lose all our IP. Uh, so it kind of, uh, it, it, it was clearly polarizing, but not in the typical way. Uh, and I think that if you kind of take out the sidewalk labs narrative for a moment, by and large, this is a pretty kind of low key, um, uh, a low key activity that once in a while kind of explodes. And um, like another example is uh, in San Diego, where the municipality invested a ton of money in these smart traffic lights that. Uh, or, sorry, smart street lights that were supposed to kind of lower carbon and do a bunch of you know civic-minded things. It turns out that they were really good for police investigations, and this created a huge amount of controversy in that city. And it took over um, local politics for a while. 
And there were there was an interesting outcome to it, which is that uh, there was recognition on the part of the municipality that you needed to have some way for the public and for citizens to kind of look at these technologies and say, you know, is this good? Is it bad? You know, how could we, how could it be misused? And so there is that now that overlay in the municipal governance in a lot of places that is responding to this kind of technology. Uh, that being said, it tends not to be a flashpoint unless, you know, with these the sort of handful of exceptions. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. It seems to me that a basic assumption of smart cities is that we have the state capacity to oversee, manage, and leverage the insights of smart city technologies. What's your sense about the state of municipal governance in Canada or elsewhere, for that matter? Are cities up to the task? No, I think this is. I think that's a big problem because because even very large municipal governments like the city of Toronto, which you know is the I think the sixth or seventh largest government in Canada. Uh, don't really have the chops to deal with the technology. Uh, and in the case of sidewalk labs, uh, you know, this is very cutting edge technology. Uh, it, you know, requires a lot of, you know, sort of expertise to understand what what's going on. And, you know, municipalities buy buses and they buy asphalt and they buy playground equipment. And uh, they tend to spend less time on buying this very high tech equipment. You know, they, I mean, they have their own enterprise systems and their, you know, their websites and all of that. But this is sort of another, it's like another layer. Um, and that lack of, the lack of capacity uh, in the municipal government and also in Waterfront Toronto, which was the agency that originally did the deal with Sidewalk Labs, it was glaring that this was a huge imbalance, that there was a huge knowledge imbalance. John, we're speaking on April 25th in the middle of a mayoral campaign in Toronto in which crime and public safety issues have loomed large. What are the opportunities and risks on that file when it comes to smart city technologies? So a lot of money um, has gone into using, you know, technologies like sophisticated facial recognition and, you know, all sorts of biometrics. All of these are, you know, can be sort of considered smart city technologies and the use of different types of surveillance in public space. Uh, so uh, this includes, you know, uh, surveillance of audio, not just visual. And, uh, you know, there, I was reading a little while ago that there's an emerging technology where it's not facial recognition, it's gait recognition. So you can be identified by the way you walk. Uh, so highly sophisticated, very, very broadly used in China as a tool of state uh, surveillance. So it's an area to be 
approached with extreme caution. And, you know, the issue in Toronto with crime and safety is primarily about, uh, you know, this, this sort of series of incidents and attacks on the TTC, you know, a couple of which have been very tragic in their outcome. And I think it's misguided to believe that you could just solve these with technology or just solve them with policing or just, you know, these are not sort of one tool issues. Uh, and, you know, you may create a sense of, you know, I think a false sense of security on part of the public by, you know, sort of, you know, putting a halt, lots of cameras in all sorts of places. Um, there are already lots of cameras and stuff happens. Uh, so, uh, it's not an area where I would say that you would want to lead with the technology. You might use it as a tool, and the tool has to be deployed in a way that's consistent with our rights and freedoms, including the right to privacy. Where are some low-hanging fruit where the use of smart city technologies may not buck up against some of those potential political flashpoints, but could improve both municipal governance, but also the lives of urban residents. When I was doing the research for this book and for the fellowship that preceded it, uh, I kind of started in my mind dividing up the technologies between technologies that take their focus, take people as their focus versus those that are focused on systems or infrastructure. And I think climate is a big area where there's a huge amount of po uh, potential. Um, you know, we have to change our electricity grids, both, you know, at the sort of regional national level, but also local distribution grids to make them, uh, you know, to allow them to deal with the energy transition, more electrical, you know, cars and devices and so on. And that's a classic uh, opportunity for smart city technology. You have to use a lot of you know, analytics, AI, um, you know, big data. These are complex systems and they're very well suited. And you get, you get a, you know, you get the outcome that you want, right? Which is, you know, enabling a grid to become uh, greener or less dependent on fossil fuels, for example. Uh, so that's a, that's a good application. And I found a bunch of those um, in the Netherlands, for example, where you have, you know, here's a country that's mostly underwater and they have a, you know, they have a long, very long history of a great respect for civil engineering and the use of, you know, engineered solutions to, you know, keep the sea out. And, you know, part of the toolkit now is, you know, more digital solutions, you know, technologies that, um, you know, that work on forecasting weather more accurately or, you know, modeling um, floodwaters and sea level rise and so on. And those are all very positive applications. And I would say that they can be used safely without unduly, um, ha without having a negative influence on individuals. A big part of the book draws on the research that you carried out on different smart city models around the world. We've talked a bit about Europe already. Are there models that you encountered, John, that seem to uh, solve for the problem of civilian oversight when it comes to the use of smart city technologies? Where should Canadian policymakers be looking to build in that role for the public to, in effect, govern the, the use of smart city technologies? So the city of Barcelona is very far ahead on that. Like I, It's generally considered to be the most sort of forward-looking. The 
they, you know, there's there's a big appetite for using smart city technology in the municipality, and also a lot of, you know, mechanisms, governance, and civilian oversight that, uh, you know, encourages discussion about these technologies. It encourages trials and demonstrations, and and you know, finding a way for these technologies to fit into what municipalities do, uh, in a you know, in a progressive way, which is to say they're inclusive of public opinion. Um, they are not overly technocratic as and they it's not a, it's not a um a culture where uh there's sort of the the technology tail is wagging the dog, right? Like this is this was our problem in Toronto with sidewalk labs was that hey, we got all these solutions and you can buy some of them. Uh, there it's sort of more the other way around, which is I think the way it should be. Permit me a slightly different type of question. As someone who's thought and written a lot about cities, do you think that the recent flight that we've seen from cities is durable in an era of Zoom and hybrid work? If so, what do you think the consequences will be? I kind of believe in bigger cycles. Uh, so cities are very durable entities, right? They're, and if you, you know, if you take the long view, you know, you find cities that have gone into decline and then they come back. You know, when I started my career in the late 80s, there was a huge amount of concern about, you know, about companies moving out to the suburbs. You could actually hear, and I, I you know, now with thinking back on this, it's so ridiculous. You could hear people say, oh, Toronto's going to turn into Detroit. Like it's going to become, there's going to be a hole in the donut. And, you know, it didn't come to pass quite obviously. So I think that there is this big, interesting reorganization of work, which drives so much of what urban form is like. I don't think it's unhealthy. I think that people spend a lot of time, uh, you know, they waste a lot of time in traffic and in um, in commuting. Uh, you know, there's a way of decongesting some of the economic activity in cities. But it's, you know, it's got a lot of, uh, you know, it, it's it's very disruptive because, you know, just look at the transit, right? Huge amounts of capital, public capital are tied up in transit. And the transit investment is based on a model of, you know, the commute. Uh, so if the commute is not quite what it used to be, then, you know, we have to adapt to that. That being said, I think that basically people like to be in social environments and that kind of drives the, the sort of the clustering that happens in cities. So I'm not pessimistic on the score. I think there'll be change, but I don't think it'll be, I don't think it'll be a gutting. Uh, that's my feeling. John, let me put a penultimate question to you. As you alluded earlier, this book is the product of a multi-year fellowship where you really dedicated yourself to understanding the smart cities model and its application around the world. What are some of the things that you discovered that you think our listeners in particular and Canadians interested in public policy in general ought to know? Well, one of the big takeaways for me is that there are a fair number of examples of places where, uh, you know, large property developers are using the kind of smart city branding to, you know, generate, you know, to attract investment to large sort of mixed use developments. And in some cases, uh, you know, these are kind of fairly privatized sort of suburban enclaves that, um, are on the edges of large uh, sort of uh, developing world cities. I just read about one in Harar, for example. And 
I don't know whether they're smart cities or they're just very, you know, sort of very wired up with all the conventional wiring, but uh, plus, you know, the usual kind of uh, architecture that we find in, you know, newly developed cities. So one learning for me was that uh, there are ways that you can kind of misappropriate the, the this phrase smart city. The second is that uh, we need to um, recognize that Technologies are always around us. They make our cities better places. They do all sorts of things that en enable us to live as modern people. Uh, but we have to sort of also think about, you know, how they can be misused. And in um, the context of public space, which is what I'm interested in, you know, we need to ensure that they exist, that, that when we're using them in public space, that we're, we're satisfying, you know, the expectations that the public has of, it's information being used in uh, ways that are consistent with our expectations of privacy and so on and so forth. So that's the second thing. The third thing is that, and you know, this is maybe a bit of my squeamishness around the sidewalk labs project is that I'm interested in city building. You know, cities are durable; they last for a long time. And I wasn't keen on the notion of the city as a lab. The city is a space of great innovation. There's no question about that, but you know, whether it should be a Petri dish for you know, tech companies, I'm not sure about that's whether that's the right direction to go. So those are the kind of the three that spring to mind. Final question. Based on your research, do you think there is a future for smart cities in Canada? If so, paint a picture of what it might look like. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it's ongoing. So the what happened with smart cities is that after Sidewalk Labs, I think, and then during the pandemic, you know, the, the term kind of got a little bit sort of bedraggled, but, you know, there's still a huge market for this technology. It's global. It's in Canada. And my ideal is that it becomes part of, you know, a suite of tools that, you know, city municipalities and city planners use to kind of improve the way our cities work, you know, but in a very focused way where we're mindful about you know, what we want the technology to do and what we don't want it to do. And, you know, in that way, then it becomes like, you know, this sort of accumulation of technologies that we've developed in cities over thousands of years um, as just a piece of the city. That's a fascinating window into, as you say, an ongoing, involving topic that is going to touch Canadians almost anywhere they live. The book is Dream States, Smart Cities, Technology, and the Pursuit of Your Urban Utopias. John Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Klutch and David Matta. 
The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.